Every year of every day, thousands of people fall victim to FWP. I'm so cold. I'm starving. Nobody cares about me. Also known as First World Problems. I get so cold. Somebody set the AC to 72. I need it at 73. Starving. All we have is leftovers. Nobody cares about me. Nobody commented or liked my status. Hi, I'm Ryan Higa, and for just five hours of attention a day, you could help somebody with FWP. Everyone keeps putting so much pressure on me. I don't know what I want for my birthday. I have too much chips for my dip. If I open a new dip, I'll have too much dip for my chips. Why does Apple keep making new iPhones? Now I have to get another one? They've been through so much struggle. The remote's over there, but I'm all the way over here. So much hardship. My iPhone 5 is too big for my skinny jeans. So much attention. Tension. 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 I poured my cereal without checking to see if we had milk. We did it. So please, show your support and send them this video. And show them how much we care about their FWPs. I bought too many groceries. Now I'll have to make two trips. All you have to do is call the URL. 1-800. All right, so obviously that's kind of silly. Um, the first time I'd ever heard of First World Problems is when I saw that YouTube video, um, which that's, that's edited down a little bit. It's a little bit longer than that. Um, and, and that went viral a couple of years ago, and it just, I don't know, it was always stuck in my mind. My favorite one is the one about chips, where he's like, oh, I have too much chips for my dip, but if I open up more dip... Oh, it's good. So, listen, that's kind of silly, but we all understand this idea of, of being paralyzed when we have to make a decision. And most of the time when we think of that, uh, that problem, it's in relation to two problems or a problem with two solutions, but both of them are negative. Um, both of them are not what we would want to see and not an outcome we would want. And um, what we're going to talk about today is obviously much more serious than the video we just watched, but we're going to talk about... Um, a reality that we face in life when um, we're pressed between two decisions um, and pressed between two realities within our lives. So if you will, open up to your, your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. It's on page 840 if you're using one of the Bibles that are underneath the seat in front of you. Now we've been in this series for four weeks now, uh, walking through the book of Philippians. And we've entitled our series, finding joy in all things and as what we've seen over the last several weeks and we'll continue to see as we move forward um, is that despite Paul's circumstances and even through and because of his circumstances um, Paul has found an opportunity to rejoice in all things Um, things bad things everything he's been able to find joy in and rejoice in Uh, and that's something that that we're learning to do as we walk through uh, this book together. So do me a favor and open up to Philippians 1, and we're going to start in verse 18 today. We're going to start in verse 18 today. And so I'm actually going to start um, at, at the latter part of verse 18, because we covered the first part last week. And, and so I'm going to read all of what we have for today, and then we'll go back and we'll talk about different parts of it. So um, if you will read with me in Philippians 1, starting in the last part of verse 18, Paul says this, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayer and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. 
as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue, to, and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And so that was a lot for us to read, but we're going to stop. We're going to go back to the beginning and just kind of walk through it and look at a couple of the important points that Paul makes that have importance and relevance for us today. If you haven't been with us over the last three weeks as we've been walking through the book of Philippians, Paul is writing this letter to a group of Christians in a city called Philippi. Paul is currently in prison because of his faith, um, because of his preaching and ministry uh, for Christ. I'm going to switch this one, Lee. We even t- It may not be bothering you. All right. Can you hear me? Okay. No more popping and crackling. Sounds like Rice Krispies up here. All right. I don't even remember where I was now. Oh. Paul, Philippians, the letter, the okay. So Paul is in prison in Rome awaiting a trial before Caesar that he does not know whether it's going to end in his death or in his acquittal. And not knowing whether he may have a lot more time left or very little, Paul writes this letter to one of his favorite churches, to one of his favorite group of Christians. This is actually a church that Paul started himself many years ago. As they grew, he, he brought in some leaders. He helped train some leaders and then, and then left to go start more churches. And he's always had a very close relationship with these people and a very deep love and appreciation for them. And they have held the same for Paul. They love him dearly. They care about him. They're worried about him now that he's in prison. So that's the context of what we're reading. That's the context of this letter. And so we're going to jump back into verse 18, the latter half where we started this morning. And here's what Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice. Now, this is the conclusion to what we read last week. And the reason we didn't include this last week when we were covering verse 18 is because it's a great springboard for us to use today. So if you remember from last week, what is Paul rejoicing about? Well, Paul has just written this letter to the Philippians, and the first part of this letter, he's giving them details about how his condition in prison is going. And he begins to talk about the things that he's endured. And we talked about a lot of it last week. And despite everything that's going on, there's two groups of people who have gone out preaching Christ now that Paul is in prison. And he is still preaching Christ, but he's having to do it within those uh, rules of confinement. And there's one group who is preaching Christ with extra boldness because of what's happened to Paul. That seems odd. Paul goes to prison for preaching Christ. How could that embolden more people to do it? You would think watching the suffering of Paul would make you go, ooh, maybe I won't preach quite as loudly. Maybe I won't 
preach quite as often or as sternly. Maybe I'll back off a little bit. But what has actually happened is there's a group of Christians who have said, now that we've seen what's happened to Paul, we're going to preach all the more boldly. Not because Paul was in prison, but because of what God has done through his imprisonment. That through his imprisonment, Paul has been able to share the gospel with far more people. People that he never would have had contact with before. Paul has always wanted to go to Rome, but has never been there. And so now, because of this trial before Caesar, the Roman government has footed the bill for him to travel to Rome. And so now he's in Rome sharing Christ with his um, his prison guards. What we'll find out when we get to the end of the book of Philippians is that people within Caesar's own household have started to place their lives and their trust and their faith in Christ because of Paul. And so despite the, the terrible things that have happened to Paul, they've seen what God has done through his imprisonment. And it has given them courage to, to speak of Christ, to preach the gospel with all the more boldness. But there's another group of people that we learned about last week who have actually taken this as an illegitimate opportunity for fame. Paul's now in prison, so they decided, well, I'll take his throne. I'll take his stage. I'll take his microphone. I'll take his pulpit. Everybody loves Paul, but now that he's in prison, I can show up on the scene and start preaching Christ. Everyone will think I'm awesome. Everyone will start supporting me. Um, Back in this day, Paul is like the Billy Graham of the day. Everybody knows who Paul is, especially the Christians. And so there have been some who have started to preach Christ without any concern for Christ or those who are hearing the gospel message, but are only doing it for selfish reasons. They're looking to take Paul's place now that he's in Rome, uh, that now that he's in prison in Rome. And Paul says, regardless of their motivations, Christ is being preached. And in that, I rejoice. And that's where we pick up in verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice. And he says this, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ... This will turn out for my deliverance. Do you remember the first time we stopped and we, well, it was our second message in Philippians. The whole message was all about Paul's prayer for the Philippians. He told us why he was so thankful for them. He told us what he was thankful for about the Philippian Christians. And then he told us where that thanksgiving led him. That it led him to pray for them. And how, and how he even tells the Philippians how specifically he's praying for them. And then here Paul stops and is basically petitioning the prayers of these Philippian Christians saying, I know that as you are now praying for me like I've been praying for you. Throughout our time in Philippians, we've been building this idea of what does it mean to be the church? Two weeks ago, we talked about being a Being a part of a church means two things. We partner together in the gospel, and we partake of grace together. Then last week, we added to that, and we talked about being a church is being a family, that we've been adopted into God's family for those of us who have placed our our lives and our trust and our faith in Christ. And so being a church means that we're a family together. It means that we encourage one another. We build one another up. It means that we will get in one another's faces and, and, and correct one another when need be. But that this is a family. And now Paul's building another part of the picture of what it means to, to be a church. And to be a church means that we pray for one another. It means that we pray for one another. One of the ways that, 
that starts to happen, especially if you're new here, is that when you visit, you take that connection card, you put some of your information on there, and then on the back side, there's an opportunity for you to share prayer requests. And every week, um, we sit down and we pray over those diligently. And if necessary, maybe we'll send an email or a text or a phone call to follow up and check. Um, But one of the ways, if you want prayer, one of the ways to get connected and to start that journey is to fill out that connection card. But let me be honest with you. Simple attendance on a Sunday morning is not enough. Just showing up here, listening, singing for a little bit, and then jetting out. It's all good, but it means you miss a huge part of what it means to be a church. That being a church isn't about just partnering together and partaking together for an hour, but that we do it with our lifestyles. Being a family doesn't mean that we come in, we say hi, and then we jet out. And how can you ever pray for somebody or expect them to pray for you if you don't really know them? And so our church family extends way beyond just what takes place for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. This is where the relationships start. This is where you meet new people. This is where things get their beginning, but they've got to go beyond here. Otherwise, you're missing a huge part of why Jesus created the church. You're missing huge aspects of what Paul says, why it is so important to be a part of a church. Paul loved this church in Philippi very, very dearly. Now, they're not without their problems. And as we continue to walk through the book, we're going to see elements and places where um, they had some issues. But for the most part, this was a very healthy church. And Paul was very, very proud of them for that. Part of what makes a church healthy is that those within it pray for one another. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to find like a buddy in here and then you have to meet at like 3 a.m. every day for like two hours of prayer and Bible study. I mean, if you want to do that, great. Don't call me because I hate the mornings. But, but it starts here when you meet with someone, right? Like as soon as church gets over, I'm doing one of those spiritual things I can do. I'm headed to the mountains because elk season is now happening and I'm going elk hunting. And I'm doing that as soon as I leave church today. All right, so if I don't talk to you much today, don't take it personally. It's just that I really need to get into the mountains, okay? It's just, I'm just throwing that out there, okay? But you know what? Some people within this church are going with me. Now, I haven't been a part of this church a long time. I don't know everything about all of you, but as I've been able to hang out and talk to some of you, I realize that some of you love the outdoors like I do. You love fishing, you love hunting. And so we've set up a trip for several of us to go elk hunting. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to pray the whole time. I promise me, we're not going to pray the whole time. But it does mean that we're going to grow closer, and I'm going to learn new things about some of these men, and they're going to learn new things about me. And I'm going to find new ways that I can pray for them, and they're going to find new ways to pray for us, because that's one of the aspects that makes a church so special. So let's, let's keep moving forward. And then Paul says, as it is my eager, in verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. Here's what I love about that. I mean, is there any doubt in any of our minds that Paul was going to be ashamed? Surely not. At least if you've been with us over the last couple weeks as we've talked about the life and ministry of Paul. I mean, why would he be ashamed? After all that he's been a part of, after all that he's gotten to see and all that God has done through him 
the courage that he's displayed time and time again. I mean, several weeks ago, we read a full list of everything Paul had endured. Beatings, whippings, he had been stoned, left for dead multiple times. I mean, this guy has more lives than a cat. He, he shouldn't be alive anymore. That was funny. I just threw that out there and nobody even, never mind. All right, so despite all that he's been through, he's never been ashamed and he's always had full courage. Even in his imprisonment, he's trying to tell people about Christ all the time. He was before, before a regional king, like we read last week, King Agrippa, who started questioning Paul. And so Paul starts responding and the king even stops him and goes, dude, are you trying to make me a Christian? And Paul says, basically, yeah. Whether it happens now or later, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. But what I love about this that Paul says, pray for me that I won't be ashamed and that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. I love it because Paul's a regular guy. Like, I, granted, he goes in the Hall of Fame where most of us won't. But Paul's a guy. He's a man. He's sinful. He struggles. He falls short. And in the midst of a terrible trial, he says... Pray that I won't be ashamed and that with full courage I'll continue to be able to honor Christ. So many times we read about stories in the Bible or we see people in the Bible and we think it's almost like they're mythical creatures. Like they don't really exist or never existed because they live these lives that we can't even wrap our minds around. And certainly a lot of people in here are highlighted who have done things that are hard for us to understand. But the reality is The men and women of the Bible are just that. Men and women who God chose to use. And even now, Paul says, will you pray for me that I won't be ashamed? And I hope, if nothing else today, you identify that, that, yeah, Paul did some pretty cool things and crazy things, but, but I feel that same weight. I know what it's like to worry about, am I going to be ashamed of what I hold so dear? Am I really going to have the courage when push comes to shove to do what needs to be done? And so as we get into this section, here's what I want you to notice, and I think this is key. And and this is, if we had two big points in the message today, this will be the first one. All that we've talked about leading up to this point, over the last several weeks, most of it has referred to the past tense, about things that Paul has endured, things that have happened to Paul. They're, they're talking about past events. Um, and, and Paul certainly brings up some present day events about, about his current prayer for the Philippians. But most of it is rooted still in the past about um, what he already knows about the Philippians, what has happened to the Philippians, how they've handled trials and things. And so, so much of it is rooted in the past. And we see a huge shift right here that I think is important. It would It would be wrong for us to just skip over it. And so if we went back to verse 19, he says this, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. 
our past experiences with God and our present day mindsets pave the way for our future. Now, Paul can't predict the future. He even is going to tell us, I don't know whether this trial leads will end in death or life. He doesn't know specifically what's going to happen, but he can stand firm on what God has done in the past. He can hold fast to the promises that God has made. He can look back and see the evidence that God has been with him and been for him. And despite what happens, God will move in and through it to be glorified. He can look at the past for strength. And he's going to set his confidence and his present day mindset. Standing firm in faith. Because that will pave the way for his future. So many of us are built with anxiety. Sometimes it's anxiety about, I have two difficult decisions and I don't know which one to make. I don't know which one is the lesser of the two evils. And we're built up with anxiety about it because we don't know what the future holds. Sometimes our anxiety is built because we have two great opportunities and we don't know which one to choose. How do I know if I'm supposed to take a job here that pays less or do I go to another city and move my family and take a job that pays more? And there's so much uncertainty about what is the best? What is the one that I should choose? And we get built up with anxiety. One of the ways that we build our confidence and our faith is by reflecting on the ways that God has proven Himself faithful in the past and making a decision to set our present day mindset with confidence and faith in God. So let's keep moving. And then this is the big one. All right? Even if you don't go to church very often, uh, you're, you're not really familiar with the Bible, this is probably a verse, verse 21, that that you at least recognize as sounding familiar. Certainly something that Christians love to put on coffee cups and bumper stickers and other silly things. And so here's what it says in verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard pressed, he says, between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Now, we're going to pause on verse 21, and that's where we're we're going to really land the plane today. I'm going to read it again. If for to me, for, excuse me, to me to live is Christ... And to die is gain. Next week we're going to talk about what does it mean to live as Christ. Now if you have your worship guides, on the inside there's a schedule of the scripture topics 
and, or the scripture passages and the topics that we're going to cover as we move through the book of Philippians. And we're still going to jump to the next section of scripture next week. But that section of scripture is going to give us a better grasp for understanding what does it mean to live as Christ. What does Paul mean there? We're going to talk a little bit about that next week. But what I, where I want us to stop today is on that second part. To die is gain. And here's what's interesting. If, if, if we weren't careful, if we just did a real quick reading through this section of Scripture, it almost seems like Paul's a little bipolar here. Because he starts off with, I know that this will lead to my deliverance. Then he goes, but I don't know what I should choose. I don't know what I should want more. I don't know what's really going to happen. And then he comes back and says, but I'm confident that because it would be better for the gospel if I remain, that that's what's going to happen. And so it's almost like he's wavering back and forth, back and forth. Um, But here's what I want you to see, is what Paul is really meaning when he talks about deliverance. And it'll help us answer that question, almost why he seems to be going back and forth just a bit. So, if you'll jump back to verse 19 with me, where he makes that first declaration of full confidence. He says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And here's what's interesting about what Paul just said there. The word that is translated deliverance there, it's a good translation, it's a good word for it, but it's pretty rare to translate that Greek word as deliverance. The Greek word is called soteria. And most of the time, about 99% of the time, when you translate soteria, You translate it as the word salvation. If you've been around theology much, or if you listen to big heads on Christian radio talk, um, you may hear a word called soteriology, which is the study of salvation. And it comes from that word soteria, which we usually translate as salvation. But But here, and I think it's appropriate, He says that this will turn out for my deliverance. But by using this word, Paul wants to paint a much, much bigger picture of deliverance than you and I are thinking. Because if I'm in prison and I think deliverance, I'm thinking chains are broken, jail door flies open, Guards usher me out. That's what I think when I think deliverance. Especially in a prison context. But I want you to do something. I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 8 with me. For just a moment. It's going to be here on the screen. I believe it's page 809 in the Bibles. uh, That are underneath the seats in front of you. Romans chapter 8. And we're going to start in verse 18. Page 809, if you're using one of our Bibles. And here's what Paul says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time 
are not worth comparing, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, just stop. I mean, I don't know about you, but it almost sounds like this should belong in the book of Philippians to me. Just listen to what he says. For I consider the sufferings, put into, think of all the things we've talked about recently, of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I mean, it's almost as if you could cut and paste this into Philippians and wouldn't ever skip a beat. You wouldn't even notice that it was out of place. And then he says this. And we're going to talk a little bit about what this means. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves. And so here's what Paul is drawing this picture. He, he just jumps from all right, ground level to the 10,000 foot view. That's what he just did here. And so he brings us into the same context in Romans that we can think in Philippians about suffering for the sake of Christ and going through terrible things that we didn't deserve. And, and he says, these sufferings aren't worth comparing to the future glory that's going to be revealed. And then he just jumps back from these ground level present sufferings to the 10,000 foot view. And he starts talking about suffering in a really big picture. And he starts by talking about creation. That when sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, humans weren't the only ones who suffered the results and the negative effects of sin. That this whole world, all of creation, was impacted by the entrance of sin and death into the world. That it wasn't a part of God's original creation. And that big picture, even creation itself, is groaning and waiting for the time when all things are made right. Big picture. And continuing on, he says... And not only the creation, in verse 23, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so here he says, we, just like the creation, groan for things to be made right. Things are not right. But we have, he says, the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. And so here's what Paul just says. For those of us who believe and trust in Christ, who have placed our lives under the Lordship of Christ, we've been given an appetizer. We've gotten to taste just a portion of how good God is. Of all the love and the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy that have been poured out on us day after day after day. It's just the beginning. We've just been given an appetizer 
And now that we've tasted and seen how good God is, we eagerly await the fullness of everything to be revealed. We eagerly await deliverance so that we don't just have to taste a little, but that an image that the scriptures use so often, our cups will just overflow. And then Paul continues on. For in this hope we were, what's that word? You can do better than that. I know you're not asleep. All right, let's try again. I hope you're not asleep. If you are, you're going to wake up. For in this hope we were, same root word that was translated deliverance in Philippians. This is the verb form, but it's the same, same root word. For in this hope, we were saved. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We've been given just a taste. And we, we eagerly await the full revelation of it because We can only imagine how good it is. And that's why we're placing all of our hope in it. That's why we place all of our joy in in our deliverance, in God's goodness. Because if this is good, what we get to experience now, how good is it going to be when we get an unending portion of it? We can't see it, that's why we hope in it. But we've tasted enough to to let us know it's real, and for us just to begin to imagine how good it is. And then we're going to jump down into verse 28. And this is going to bring it all together for us here. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Paul gives us two conditions that we really need to understand what it means that God will bring deliverance for us. In the midst of life's trials and struggles and imprisonments, we hope and pray for and we seek the prayers of others to pray for our deliverance. And there's two conditions that Paul wants to build upon this idea of deliverance. And the first one is, he says, work together for good. And here's something we have to understand. There's a difference between ultimate good an immediate good. Paul does not say that God works everything out together for your immediate good. For what would be best today, now, in this moment. Remember, Paul went from that ground level view, he jumped back to 10,000 feet. And he's saying that God's going to work it together for your good. But by good, he means your ultimate good. Not your immediate good. Not your subjective, 
perception of what good would be for you. But in His infinite wisdom and love, He will work together all things for your ultimate good. And the second thing He builds us on is that not everyone gets to hold on to that promise. Not everyone that we interact with today. When you, go, when you leave here, and you go to Red Robin or Chili's or wherever you're going to go for lunch, and you sit down and you just look over all those people in the restaurant, not everyone can stand up and say, God is right now working for the ultimate, my ultimate good in every circumstance. He says what? To begin, he says, and we know that for those who love God. What does he mean by love God? Like, like I put the right bumper sticker on my car? Like, I'm a pretty good person? Like, I have decent church attendance? I can fake my way through a spiritual conversation? Like, what does he mean by love God? And then he spends the next several verses explaining the big picture of loving God, but Jesus boiled it down for us really simple. He said that those who love me obey my commandments. Oh, so you just got to do good stuff, right? Oh, so God's going to make everything good as long as I obey the right rules. But if we've learned anything over our weeks together, is that works don't produce faith. Their evidence, or what, have we, what word have we used the last several weeks? Fruit of a life that's already been changed. It's for those who have the fruit of the gospel emanating from their lives that God works the ultimate good for ev- out of every situation And the fruit of the gospel comes by placing your total trust in it. That we embrace the full message of the gospel. The life, the ministry, the teachings of Jesus. His sacrificial death on the cross. His burial and His victorious resurrection. And His promise to all of us that those who will trust and believe in Him, who will embrace the Gospel, that He'll make us His children, that we'll be adopted as sons and daughters into God's family. That He makes that promise for us. It's those who have placed the lordship of their life into Jesus' hands that can say, I know He works everything for my ultimate good. Why, why Paul can say, whether by life or by death, it doesn't matter. Because I still get delivered. Because I still find deliverance. Because Jesus has saved me. Because Jesus has promised salvation to me. And so we can declare that death is gain. 
Death is a victory for us. Because then we're no longer limited to an appetizer. Because death is the gate that leads us to the full course. To all of God's grace and mercy and goodness. And while we can say, in chains, in prison, in despair, in persecution and trials and in difficulties, we can say, I know that this will lead to my deliverance. Because for those who are in Christ, God's got our ultimate good in mind. And our ultimate good comes at the glory of Christ Jesus. And this is how Paul closes our section today in Philippians. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul says the ultimate goal for all of this isn't whether I get set free or I get to go home to heaven or um, whether you're excited about my deliverance or, or discouraged by um, my execution. It doesn't matter what the motivations of people who are preaching Christ are so long as He is preached because in the end, what matters most is that our lives, that our bodies, whether in life or in death, bring glory to the name of Christ. Because when we embrace the gospel, we died to ourselves. Because we said, it's not about my life anymore. Paul, the same author, says in Galatians, For I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer that I that live, but Christ that lives in me. And for those who have placed their lives pressed into the gospel, embraced the gospel, Death is gained because we know that God is going to bring about our deliverance. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for being so good to us, so gracious and merciful to us. God, Paul was certainly clear that of anyone in this world, he deserved your calling and your grace less than anyone else. And, and I wonder if, if we feel that weight this morning. If, if reflecting on our own lives, on the first fruits of the Spirit that we've had the opportunity to taste, if we feel that same weight of of nobody deserves this less than me. Got to pray that you would mold and shape our hearts as we examine our own lives. Father, that we'd be able to praise and worship you knowing that you have brought about deliverance. That our salvation is in you and you alone. And that we can be joyous, we can rejoice, we can take joy in all things because our joy is built on you.
the, ones who, the one who is victorious, the one who never changes, so that despite our circumstances, life or death, our hope is in you. We always have reason to rejoice. We keep your eyes closed for just a moment. There's nothing more contrary to our natural thought process and to the message of this world than to say death is gain. In our culture, we do everything we possibly can to avoid it, to prolong life, to make life as simple and easy and comfortable as possible. For no one in our world is death a victory, is death gain. But for those who have placed their faith faith and trust in Christ. This morning, as you think about death, for you is death the final stamp of victory? Is it that final stage of of your life being a source of glory to Christ? Is it something that can be celebrated and rejoiced in? For those in Christ, death is gain. And because we've tasted just a little bit of God's goodness, we can't wait to experience it all. But if maybe in you this morning there's not a joy and an anticipation and an eagerness to know what's on the other side of death, to be able to experience the fullness of God, if if you'd say death is not gain, it's not victory for you, you're scared of it, you you do everything you can to, to avoid it and to not think about it, my question for you is, Have you really placed the full trust of your life into the hands of Christ? Have you fully embraced His gospel? That you would take a moment for self-examination. To look at your own life. And your own heart. Father, thank you over these next few moments. We're, we're going to worship you. We're going to worship you through singing. We're going to worship you through giving. And Father, I pray that these, these songs and the lyrics we sing would be a reflection of what's really in our hearts. And that we can stand up and, and praise and rejoice you despite our life circumstances. That our joy would be found solely in you. That we would sing and celebrate your salvation. That as we give, we would would just be showing how grateful we are and, and how much you've given to us. Father, I pray for those in this room may have questions, may have doubts, that they would be encouraged and emboldened 
to investigate you, to press into you, to seek you. And that as we move forward this morning, as we leave here and, and enter into the other aspects of our, our life, that, that all of it would be centered in you. All of it would be rooted in your gospel. And that through it all, we could not be ashamed, but with confidence, embrace your deliverance.